1: Along the U.S.-Mexico border, thousands of Ukrainian refugees have been gathering, hoping to apply for asylum. Our colleague Kevin Seif spoke with one of those people, Valentina Szymanserwska. She was sitting on the grass, just a few hundred feet away from the
2: U.S. border. When I sit here, I uh, uh, the correspondents ask me what for I am thankful. I am thankful for the possibility to have my tears. I couldn't cry in Ukraine, all the war, I couldn't cry. I must be strong, I must help them, I must help me, I must help our men who are in the war. And here I'm crying all the time, i here.
1: She fled Ukraine along with her daughter and grandchild, but her husband and son-in-law stayed back in Ukraine to fight.
2: You know, these past weeks have seen a terrible human cost of Putin's ambition for conquest and control. Approximately two-thirds, two-thirds, of all Ukrainian children have been displaced from their home. More than five million Ukrainians have fled their country. It's an absolute outrage. Today,
1: the Biden administration announced a new plan for welcoming Ukrainian refugees.
2: We've already welcomed tens of thousands of Ukrainians to the United States, and today, I'm announcing a program, Unite for Ukraine, a new program to enable Ukrainians seeking refuge to come directly from Europe to the United States.
3: Most refugees have fled to Poland and Romania, other neighboring countries, but the Biden administration has pledged to admit up to 100,000 people. And today, a month after that pledge, they announced how that will be carried out. Ria Saketti covers immigration for The Post. Most people are expected to be admitted under humanitarian parole, which is not a permanent process. It's a temporary two-year process. They'll be able to live and work in the United States. But there are specific rules. Ukrainians cannot apply for this themselves. They're going to have to have Sponsors in the United States could be regular, ordinary American citizens, their relatives, or organizations such
2: as churches and other nonprofits. This program will be fast, it will be streamlined, and will ensure the United States honors its commitment to the people of Ukraine and need not go through our southern border.
1: From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Elahe Izadi. in for Martine Powers. It's Thursday, April 21st. Today, the new program for Ukrainian refugees fleeing war. Plus, just in time for Earth Day, how to tell what companies are really doing for the climate and what's just greenwashing. What had been the process for Ukrainians seeking asylum in the United States up until now? Well, it had been a a fairly informal
3: process. There have been thousands of Ukrainian refugees showing up at the U.S.-Mexico border because until now there hadn't been a clear way to get to the United States directly. And officials said today that that system of showing up unannounced at the border without a visa or other permission to come to the country will end Monday when this new program begins, that
1: anyone who shows up at the border will be denied entry. What kind of situation did that create at the border for Ukrainian migrants? The
3: system at the border just showing up unannounced without a visa for Ukrainians or or anyone is a gamble. Right now, the United States is expelling thousands of migrants from the U.S.-Mexico border under a pandemic public health order. That's set to end on May 23rd. But anyone who shows up without permission at the U.S.-Mexico border is taking a risk. They could be expelled. Advocacy groups say people who have been pushed back are subject to extortion, kidnapping, and other crime. And, and there's a great deal of uncertainty. There's no guarantee that the U.S. government will make an exception for people at the border. You know, some people are getting in, including most Ukrainians, but a lot of people are, are getting expelled. And the United States says today that that group could include Ukrainians if they don't apply for, through this program
1: instead. Ria, you've also reported that we're seeing record numbers of migrants in totality at the border and that Ukrainians just make up a small portion of, of that much bigger population. Can you paint a picture for us of who is arriving and why? So the Ukrainians arriving at the U.S.-Mexico
3: border are part of a much larger group of people who have been arriving in much larger numbers from Latin America and the Caribbean, particularly Mexico, Cuba, Haiti, other parts of the world. They're they're fleeing violence, poverty, and, and their own economies that have been ravaged by the pandemic. And some are seeking humanitarian protection uh, from violence, and others are trying to come here to work and join family members who can can help them.
1: So with this new program for Ukrainians, the Biden administration doesn't want people to go to the southern border and get in. Where do they hope that they will come from instead?
3: What the Biden administration wants to do is create a more orderly process. Instead of having people show up at the border without being vetted by the United States, without having permission or just, you know, basically unknown to the United States. They, they want to create a more orderly process where a sponsor applies for someone from Ukraine who has fled, for example, to Poland or to Moldova and have them undergo background checks, have Homeland Security vet the sponsors here in this country, and then give them permission to travel, probably on an airplane, to an airport in the United States where they will be processed on a case-by-case basis.
1: Why did it take so long to set up this more orderly program? I mean, this this promise of admitting 100,000 refugees was made a month ago, right?
3: Right. And there have been calls on the Biden administration to set this up. And the Biden administration has repeatedly said they have been working on it. But the pressure increased as more Ukrainians began arriving in Mexico, which is not a traditional path for them. But the numbers shot up on, on the southwest border from under 300 in February to more than 3,000 in March. And they seem to be, you know, on track to rise even more if something wasn't done.
1: Ria, I'm wondering if you can just talk us through the kinds of protections the U.S. offers people fleeing war and, and how can they normally receive asylum status and, and come into the country as refugees? Sure.
3: You know, the, the different types of protection people receive in the United States varies a lot, and it depends on what the United States is willing to offer them and and also what they want for themselves. So a lot of refugees from Ukraine, for example, may not want to move here permanently. A temporary status might be great for them because, you know, their husbands or sons um, are still fighting in Ukraine, and they, they don't want to be far from them. They want to reunite and soon. But of course, as the war is entering its second month, rather nearing the, um, the two-month mark, it's really unclear what is going to happen with Ukraine right now. So today, the State Department and the Department of Homeland Security are announcing a new program called Uniting for Ukraine that would grant most refugees humanitarian parole. That's a temporary status. They can uh, live here, work here. And stay for up to two years. That could probably be renewed at some point, um, but they're not talking about that now. Then there are existing programs, you know, that have existed for decades, such as the U.S. refugee program, that offers a green card and a path to U.S. citizenship, and and people will get resettlement aid. That's different from humanitarian parole. They won't get help. They'll rely on private sponsors for for support. And so, those are the kinds of programs that are for people who are outside of the United States and who have fled Ukraine. Now for people who are already here, say you're from Ukraine and you were studying at a university and your visa is about to expire, those folks can apply for something called temporary protected status that offers up to 18 months of permission to stay here, to get a work permit, which is extremely important to people, and just to be able to reside in the United States that could also be renewed. And then finally, there there's other forms of protection. We have uh, a million people of Ukrainian descent living in the United States. If they wanted to sponsor their relatives for permanent residency, they could apply to do that. And there's those kinds of protections as well.
1: For people fleeing, they're encountering this really complex web of rules and laws and it's I mean, for us sitting in in our comfortable homes, it's a lot to figure out how to navigate. Um, what have you been hearing from people as they're they're trying to do this under such such difficult circumstances?
3: For Ukrainians, getting into the United States is just the first step, and and after that, they're going to need help, whether it's from their friends or relatives or private organizations or, or the government, in figuring out what to do next, whether they should try to renew their temporary status or apply for something more permanent through work or through a relative, if that is even possible. And and these, you know, U.S. immigration law has been compared to the tax code for its complexity. It's something that is very, very difficult to navigate on your own, no matter who you are, American or an immigrant. And for Ukrainians who may be arriving, maybe some are fluent in English, but some might not be. Some might be elderly and children. And so we were expecting a lot of families, for example. And add that to the trauma they, they just escaped and are still experiencing, they're very likely going to need help just figuring out how to secure their status in the United States, whatever it may be.
1: Maria, thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. Maria Sacchetti covers immigration for The Post. Julie Deppenbrock produced this story with help from Rennie Svarnovsky. After the break, what corporations are promising to do to fight climate change and how to read between the lines. We'll be right back.
0: I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious.
1: Each week, we're going to talk about a big
3: idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love books,
0: movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts.
1: Day is tomorrow, and this time of year especially, we hear from a lot of corporations about what they're doing to fight climate change.
0: Greenwashing is when companies are making bold claims about the environment that may not necessarily be supported by the real actions they're taking on climate.
1: This is Doug McMillan, a corporate accountability reporter at The Post. He's been reporting on some of these claims that companies make. If you're trying to make more sustainable choices, it can be hard to know what all these promises mean. So we asked Doug to help us navigate all of this and figure out who is living up to the hype.
0: Tip number one, net zero pledges don't tell the full story. So one of the most common ways that companies talk about their environmental commitments right now is through these net zero pledges, which essentially says they are promising to lower their carbon emissions by a certain amount, by a certain date. For many of these companies, it's by 2050, they say they're going to be net zero. And this doesn't necessarily mean they're going to eliminate all of their carbon emissions, because for many companies, that will probably be impossible. But for some portion, they will reduce their carbon emissions. And for the remaining portion of of emissions, they plan to buy carbon offsets, which essentially is planting trees or doing something in the world that they intend to reduce emissions in a way that will offset the emissions of their own operations. The problem is that we found that these net zero pledges often don't really tell the full scope of the carbon emissions and the carbon footprint of these companies. And, you know, sometimes uses their company's own definition of what their emissions and their carbon footprint picture is, as opposed to what, you know, maybe international standard setting groups or what consumers might expect those net zero pledges to mean.
1: So Doug, what is the second thing that consumers could watch out for?
0: Tip number two is carbon is not simple to offset. We've already talked about carbon offsets, and this is when companies pay for the certification of project that is going to reduce a certain amount of emissions from happening in the world, such as planting a tree or protecting a forest from being cut down. What a lot of environmental groups and shareholder groups are starting to be more and more concerned about is companies abusing the use of offsets, or claiming to be using offsets, which may or may not actually be reducing those emissions. With many carbon offset projects, it's really hard to tell whether the volume of emissions being reduced is actually equal to the emissions that these companies are intended to replace. Let me take you through an actual example that we focused on in the story. Google worked with a landfill in upstate New York in 2010 to install a technology that converts methane gas from that landfill into usable electricity. Sustainability has been a core value for us since Google was founded 22 years ago. The potential problem with a company like Google saying that it's using this technology to reduce its carbon footprint is that landfill owners themselves have increasing incentives to buy and install methane conversion technology. Um, In many places, communities and landfills have installed this technology and it's turned into a profitable enterprise itself. They're actually converting methane into electricity and selling that electricity and growing revenue that pays for the technology itself. Some states and federal governments around the world are actually requiring landfill owners to install this kind of technology. There are some suggested regulations in place in New York, but from what we can tell, it does not look like this particular landfill would be required by law to install this technology. By the end of our second decade, we had achieved 100% renewable energy matching our electricity consumption with clean energy for our data centers and offices around the world. Google's CEO has said that since 2007, the company has been carbon neutral. And this is a claim that the company continues to make on their homepage on Google.com, which is one of the most visited websites on the planet. What they really mean is that for part of their emissions... They are making up for that with projects like this landfill project. And, you know, critics out there are saying that it's not 100 percent clear that those projects resulted in reductions in carbon that wouldn't have happened without Google's involvement.
1: Yeah, I mean, it sounds like the reality of embarking on any of these is way more complicated than these broad declarations would perhaps lead us to believe. Is there another way consumers can be savvy when they're confronted by these sorts of claims?
0: So tip number three is to read the fine print. It's always a good idea.
1: Right, Doug. Whoever wants to read the fine print, though.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It is boring and it is tedious, and it usually involves looking at you know heavily lawyered phrases and documents, but for kind of parsing the environmental claims made by companies, sometimes is necessary to dig through a lot of websites and pages and documents and figure out what they really mean when they make these kind of bold claims. Um, one of the bold claims that we looked at was McDonald's, which became one of many companies in 2014 to say at a United Nations summit on forests that it would quote, eliminate deforestation in supply chains.
2: Our work on sustainable beef focuses on the three principles of climate smart agriculture. Increasing productivity, supporting farmers' resilience to the impacts of climate change, and also mitigating their impacts on climate change.
0: And that's a big statement for McDonald's because they are a huge driver of demand for products like beef, chicken, palm oil, coffee, fiber-based packaging products, all of these things drive a ton of demand in the food supply chain around the globe. And for McDonald's to say it was taking an action to make sure that all of the suppliers of those products were eliminating deforestation to create soy products that are then fed to chicken, for example, this is a big claim made by a huge company. Their pledge was to eliminate deforestation by 2020. What we saw when when 2020 came and went, McDonald's said on its website that it no longer pledged to eliminate deforestation. What they changed the fine print to say was that they were going to support deforestation-free supply chains, which, what does that mean? Um, it's a little bit less clear. It's a little bit less definitive than eliminate deforestation. Um, But what they do say on their website, if you kind of click into a few links, is that they are going to be more careful about sourcing commodities from parts of the world at a higher risk of deforestation. And um, they also have a series of footnotes, if you scroll down on the web- webpage, which lists several exemptions, um, which products they are not including in this goal, including beef as a flavoring and sauces, soy used as an ingredient in their food products, coffee extracts, and fiber products that are contained in woodsters, cutlery, tray liners, and straws.
1: Yeah, and I think that example is a good one to show that... You can talk about one company, but sometimes it's it's related to the relationships they have with other companies. And then there are instances where there's like a brand that's part of a larger corporation. Like I'm thinking of like a candy brand and their parent company they belong to. So what should consumers know when they see a promise from like a specific brand?
0: I think you're talking about tip number four, which is focus on parent companies, not individual products and brands. One of the examples that caught our attention, last year's Earth Day, the chocolate bar maker KitKat, said that it was gonna become carbon neutral by 2025.
1: KitKat is committing to becoming carbon neutral by 2025, reducing emissions by 50% through forest regeneration, planting 5 million shade trees, supporting regenerative farming, and securing 100% renewable electricity for our factories worldwide and will offset any remaining carbon by investing in climate projects. Let's give the planet a break.
0: I'm sure a lot of people who like eating Kit Kat are happy to know that they are making these claims and that they have these goals as a brand. But the confusing part for a lot of people is that this goal does not exactly line up with the goal of its parent company, Nestle. Nestle has stated that it plans to take a much more conservative timeline for cutting its emissions in half by 2030, and it plans to cut its emissions completely by 2050. So as opposed to KitKat going carbon neutral in basically three years, its parent company says it's going to eliminate carbon emissions over the next few decades. So a very big difference. What's up with that? So, the difference is that KitKat will use some portion of its carbon emissions, will be offset as opposed to completely eliminating those emissions. KitKat brand will use offsets to make this claim by 2025 that it is carbon neutral. And they are being upfront about this fact that they say, you know, they said in the press release that they are using high quality offsetting. But some of the experts that we spoke to at a organization called the New Climate Institute said that customers should be careful when they see individual products or brands that are making climate claims that are very different than the claims of their broader company. Because, you know, usually these individual products share a lot of the same personnel, the same operations. I mean, usually it's, you know, very much embedded in the bigger company and the amount of emissions are you know, very, usually very similar at an individual brand or a parent company. So it's unlikely that one product would be so much more green or so much more ambitious on climate goals. You know, What really is usually happening is that this product or this brand is getting more attention from the corporate marketers in the company who want to position that product as green. And what was interesting was we actually spoke to Nestle's head of climate delivery and sustainable sourcing, who told us that, yeah, in fact, their decision to make this announcement about the KitKat goal was actually driven by what they said was a market demand for carbon neutral chocolate bars. Um, This guy said, for certain brands, there is a consumer appetite for carbon neutral claims and we want to remain relevant in the marketplace. So, um, you know, Nestle is basically saying to us that KitKat is making a different climate claim as our broader company. But we're doing that because we have to respond to consumer demand and consumer interest in environmental and sustainable chocolate bars.
1: So what about all of these brands that carry these labels that say, you know, they're green-friendly or eco-friendly, or they might carry like a kind of certification? Are those valid?
0: So tip number five is our final tip certifications may have little meaning these little green stickers that you sometimes see on products. Well, they don't always really mean anything. I spoke to a professor who has actually done a lot of work in greenwashing. And one of the things she told me was that the average consumer, you know, probably thinks that they are getting something that has been environmentally tested or something that has been vetted by a third party group when they see these certification labels. In reality, she told me companies have gotten really smart about this consumer expectation and they are saying, you know, consumers are looking for these products with labels Why don't we just come up with our own label? So what you get sometimes is companies who are putting out these labels and certifications that are not necessarily backed up by any specific environmental criteria. And we saw that with this one case of Benjamin Moore, the paint company.
2: If you want to paint with no harsh fumes, if you want to paint without harmful chemicals, if you want to paint that's safer for your family and the environment, only this can.
0: For a few years, Benjamin Moore was marketing some of its paints as having a green promise label, which is a little green picture of a hand, um, which, you know, I think many consumers might have seen that and believe that some third party group had, you know, vetted the claims and tested uh, the environmental uh, sustainability and other features of this product. But it turns out that Benjamin Moore itself had just produced this brand And it was unclear what kind of vetting or testing was behind it. These claims were made by the Federal Trade Commission, which sued Benjamin Moore in 2017. And they were arguing basically that the company made untrue claims about this line of paint. And they were deceiving customers into believing that the products were certified by an independent group. So, you know, a basic tip here is that if customers see a label and it's interesting them to them or you know it's part of their attraction to the product. It's a good idea to just pull out your phone and Google that label and what it means because typically you'll immediately be able to see if it is a third party group. Does the first link that comes up on Google is it a .org or you know some kind of nonprofit organization that is behind that? Um, is it an industry group that's behind that, which is also fine, but you know may suggest that this and other companies have together collectively decided on some standards that are important to customers, or is it a is it a certification that the company created itself, which I think to most consumers would have less meaning than some kind of independent third-party certification.
1: Doug, the, the companies that you looked into and just in general, what do they have to say about the claims that they're making and what they're trying to do to preserve the the environment?
0: Yeah, generally, the progress that companies are making is good and is a lot more than you know, what we saw just a few years ago. We're now living in an age when the realities of climate change are here and they're with us. And the warnings from these reports um, that we're hearing from climate groups around the world and scientists around the world um, are dire. And I think that companies are waking up to the, that reality. So we are starting to see real progress on things like measuring, reporting emissions. Um, that's kind of the biggest one that people are, are holding companies accountable for right now. Um, and we're I think we're starting to see companies um, look at climate change as more than just a marketing opportunity.
1: Well, Doug, I feel way more equipped to make these these decisions. So thank you so much for your reporting and your time.
0: Cool. Thank you, Elihe.
1: Doug McMillan is a corporate accountability reporter at The Post. Jordan Marie Smith produced this story. If you're interested in reading more of our corporate accountability and climate reporting, we have a special offer for Earth Day. Right now, until April 22nd, you can read any story on the Washington Post website for free. That's right. All you need to do is sign up with your email address when prompted. No credit card required. And thank you so much for listening and reading. Today's show was mixed by Rennie Svarnofsky and Sean Carter and edited by Maggie Penman and Alexis Diao. I'm Elahe Izadi. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.
3: There's always more to the story. I'm Leanne Caldwell, anchor of Washington Post Live.